may be seated. And you would turn in your Bibles or the bulletin to Job uh, chapter 1, verses 6 through 22 today. Job 1, 6 through 22. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we have not known your mind. We have certainly never been your counselors. We could give you no gift that you might owe us in return, for all things are yours, and you owe nothing to anyone. Instead, you are the great and the kind giver, abounding in steadfast love and kindness. The depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge that you possess, not only possess, but that you are in your very nature. Lord, we worship you for those things. From you and through you and to you are all things. And to you, O God, be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's uh, stand once again for the reading of God's word. Should have had you just remain standing. We're getting our calisthenics this morning, but worship is meant to be active and not just observed. So, hear the words of the Lord from Job 1 6 22. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all he has on every side? Have you blessed the work of his hands? And his possessions have increased in the land, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sibians fell upon them and took them and struck struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep, and the servants, and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels, and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe 
and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Amen. The reading of God's word. You may be seated. This is one of the more unusual stories in the Bible. We, it's because we, we have an event that we view from two sides, which we don't normally get to do, from God's side from heaven and from Job's side of, from a position of ignorance of what has gone on in heaven. And I don't want to suggest in preaching this passage at all that our suffering or uh, any of our suffering is necessarily the result of the exact same kind of heavenly interaction. However, there is a lot we can learn from this passage that will apply to our own suffering and put it in proper perspective. In particular, there's much we can affirm about God from this passage that will move us to worship even in the midst of great suffering. So we'll look at this passage from three uh, heads this morning. First is God's absolute sovereignty. God's absolute sovereignty. And in verse 6, the narrator begins describing a scene in which God, the king, assembles his heavenly court. And among the members of this court is this Satan figure. Um, these these uh, beings are described as the sons of God. And this is a phrase used in the Bibles frequently to um, talk about angelic beings. So God has gathered the, the host of heaven together in his court. Um, Psalm 29.1 says, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. And literally, heavenly beings, there is Ben Elohim, sons of God. So Satan um, is present and he didn't sneak in the back door. He, like the others, is there, it says, to present himself to the Lord. And God calls on him for a report. The Hebrew word, Satan, uh, means adversary or enemy. It's interesting, actually, the text calls this figure not by the proper name Satan, but with a description or even perhaps a title or an office, the Satan. The adversary, the enemy. And why is that significant? Well, if we consider the alternative in light of the conversation between God and the Satan, um, it's common among some, many, unbelieving interpreters, even some believing interpreters perhaps, to talk about this scene between God and Satan as a perverse wager. Or maybe a tug of war over Job. Um, but this view assumes a very serious error and one that's actually contradicted by the story itself, and that's the, the error of dualism. In other words, it's the idea that God and Satan or the, the forces of good and evil are in this sort of great battle or war. And, and who will win is kind of yet to be determined. Or maybe a bit more optimistic, believing flavor of the same error is that we know God is going to win the war, but Satan wins some of the battles. 
uh, other alternatives. We, we see that, for example, the yin and the yang, um, this idea of good and evil balancing each other out in the universe. Um, none of these ideas can account for what's clearly going on in this text, and that is that God is king. He reigns supreme over everything, and he assembles his court, and he expects a report from them, and he raises the question about Job, and he gives permission and limitation to the Satan. And the evil one is not only an opposing force, he is, he's the enemy, the adversary, but he's also a part of the court. He's a part of the king's program. Verse 7, the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. Satan's response is, is vague, but it suggests an intention. Um, Hebrew scholar David Klein says that the verb here, going, refers predominantly to going about for a particular purpose. Um, for example, Numbers 11.8, um, it's used for going to search for manna. Or 2 Samuel 24.8, to go and to take a census. So there's purpose there. So he has been busying himself with his business. Um, but he doesn't specify exactly what his business is from the rest of Scripture. We know he is the prince of the power of the air. He's the one who has the power of death. Um, he's the deceiver, the murderer, the adversary. He is the accuser. And so it's striking to me that God in this scene is not seeking reports from his advisors about the enemy. He's demanding a report from the enemy in his court. Uh, there's another similar story in the Old Testament that gives us another peek into God's courtroom in which God commands a deceiving spirit for his purposes. Uh, 1 Kings 22, 19-23, uh, the prophet Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one, and one said one thing and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, By what means? And he said, I will go out and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, You are to, enti you are to entice him and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. So God is using the deceiving spirit to his glory. He's in charge. Initially, this may make us feel a little bit uneasy. But we, when we remember that God, in his absolute wisdom, does not need uh, a council of advisors in his court. He has absolute wisdom. That's not what his court is for like a human king's is. And that every last being in the universe is in, in his employ for his purposes. Uh, we come to the conclusion that God is absolutely 100% sovereign and that is actually a, a comfort to us. The alternative is horrifying to say that somehow God does not know or that God is in some way helpless to mold the events of time, or that there's 
things beyond his power to control. Um, These are not comforting ideas or solutions. Again, in our own suffering, we shouldn't say, well, I'm doing pretty good, but but this this trial is the result of of clearly of of some kind of divine debate over me. That's not the application here. However, we can certainly say, uh, whatever may come, good or ill, my God is sovereign over it. Not a hair shall fall from my head without his intention. Nothing will come my way that's not ordained by my Father in heaven who loves me and cares for me. He's in absolute sovereign control of even the fiercest of our enemies. As Luther said, Satan is God's Satan. We might ask ourselves, why doesn't God just end it now? And the short answer is, we don't know. Another short answer is, for God's glory. If God didn't have some purpose in his glory with Satan yet to accomplish, Satan would be gone. The the fact that Satan is in God's employ does not mean he's happy about it. It doesn't mean that he is for God or for Job in any possible sense. He is after the destruction of Job. He, He is at every turn going to challenge God's right to be God. So our second heading is God's worth as the object of worship is challenged. God's worth as the object of worship is challenged. Um, In verse 8, it's God, not Satan, that raises the question of Job. Um, And God's not being a braggart here about his his great saint Job. Uh, He highlights the righteousness of Job with respect to himself highlighting how it is that his servant Job glorifies him and lives in obedience to him. Um, And he actually uses the same language as the narrator did in verse 1 about Job. He adds that Job is his servant, which is a title usually reserved for the prophets or people um, who are leaders in God's um, economy. There's a reason he speaks these words to the Satan, to the enemy. In other words, he could have just extolled Job to the whole congregation. If his, if his intent was to be um, bragging about Job, he didn't have to single out Satan, but he singles him out for a reason. He wants to engage the enemy. He, God, will initiate this process of proving out, of distilling the faith of Job, of purifying Job's faith to its essence. And in this process, Satan plays his appointed role as the enemy. So in verse 8, the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? The Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? Have you blessed? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. 
Um, this question that Satan raises is not out of left field. It's not altogether a bad question. Uh, Calvin points out that, that Satan, he, he knows our human nature pretty well. Uh, how quickly we shift our gaze from, from the giver to the gift. He, Better than all of us, Satan knows how inclined we are to do that. He knows the in, idolatrous inclinations of our heart. Um, Christopher Ash says, I think helpfully here, the Satan is not bullying God, nor is he offering him a casual wager as though Job's suffering were just to see who wins a bet in heaven. No, the Satan, for all his malice, is doing something necessary to the glory of God. In some deep way, it is necessary for it to be publicly seen by the whole universe that God is worthy of the worship of a man and that God's worth is in no way dependent on his gifts. So, ironically, in this very uh, challenge of God's worth as an object of worship and obedience, Satan is actually proving that which he wishes to dismiss. So he goes out from the presence of the Lord and and the stripping of Job begins rapidly and is fairly comprehensive. Verse 13. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. Uh, Remember from 1 through 5, this is something they did frequently um, as really a testimony to the, the unity and the godliness of Job's house. Um, and I believe that the narrator introduces them here first, but then concludes with the children to just demonstrate how much more valuable the children are than the other things that Job loses. In verse 14, And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans, um, debated who they are, people from the south for sure, fell upon them and took them and struck them down, uh, struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God, probably lightning. This is a common phrase to, to talk about lightning. could be something else, some sort of fire and brimstone. But often it's, it's referring to lightning. Fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the, seven, and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans, again, uh, debated who they are. People from the north uh, formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped, escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. Um, Possibly is a whirlwind. Commentators get all kind of worked up. Like, how could there be wind from all the corners of the house? Is it a whirlwind? And I think it just means that the wind overcame the structural integrity of the house. Um, And it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. This is where we have to, to put ourselves in Job's Shoes. If, you, if you've read the book that we put out, uh, Knowing Scripture, we have to read the Bible um, from people's shoes. Uh, 
experientially. So being completely ignorant of what's gone on in heaven, the scene in heaven with Satan and God in the heavenly court, um, this, what would it have been like to be Job in that moment? We've all had days where there's just kind of one disaster after another. Usually I'm very quick to complain. I can't believe this is happening. Very small things. Uh, I think of something big too, like uh, the 9-11 disasters, to hear about the plane striking the building and then to find out that your, your loved one was killed, like that kind of a day. First the Sabaeans come, kill people Job no doubt cared about. His servants stole a major part of his wealth. Animals were his wealth. And not only that, but they constitute a major part of the infrastructure he used to sustain his livelihood. And that attack alone would send most of us, I think, into despair. And then while that reporter is still speaking, another comes and says that fire or lightning falls from heaven and consumes his sheep and those servants, which to me, if it was lightning, has to be an apocalyptic level storm to kill 7,000 sheep and servants. Um, it's something manifestly supernatural. And then while that reporter is speaking, another comes and says the Chaldeans came and they kill his people again and take another huge portion of his wealth, 3,000 camels. And then the wind destroys this, this abode where his kids were all together in one house. And it's not unreasonable to, to suspect that there may have been other servants there, perhaps even grandchildren, we don't know. But certainly his ten children. Uh, how would you respond to those events? You could probably say, because we've all been through tragedy, not on that scale, but how have you responded to tragedy? How would we respond standing in Job's shoes? Remember, too, that the covenantal framework of blessing and cursing is a part of the culture at this time, even outside of Israel. Even before the coming of Moses and Job, it says he's greatly blessed. Um, He blesses God. He takes extreme measures in 1 through 5 to make sure his kids aren't secretly cursing God. There's this blessing and cursing paradigm here. And Satan, his whole shtick is to say that he will curse you to your face if you take it away. And if you go on to read in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, the passages about covenant cursings and blessings, there's an obvious parallel between all that Job has endured and those covenant curses. And so, in other words, it it wouldn't be unreasonable for Job to wonder, what did I do? that God would curse me like this. We've all wondered this at various times. What on earth did I do wrong? Why is God allowing this to happen to me? Why doesn't he change me? Is he mad at me? And the great longing of the Satan is that we would curse God in response. That we speak out in opposition to his wisdom. That, that we cry out in anger and discontentment and, and suggest that he is not just. And that, that if we were in charge, we would do a better job than God. Satan wants us to join 
him in challenging God's worth as an object of worship. So how, how does Job respond? Um, will Satan's prediction come true? He will curse you to your face. Will Job's love for God be, be proved or will it be proved to be a superficial appreciation of good things? Or does he love God for God? That's the question. And the, the, the third heading here is that God's worth as an object of worship is proved. His worth as an object of worship is proved. Um, verse 20, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Uh, quick side note, correction. Last week I said Job and his friends didn't use the divine name, Yahweh. Uh, forgive me for not doing my due diligence. He uses it right here in chapter 1. Um, so, um, for what that's worth. Uh, just a few observations about Job's response. Um, and it's a response clearly worthy of emulation because it's testified, in all this, Job did not sin. So this is a good way to respond to tragedy. The first observation is that Job grieved. He grieved. He tore his robe. He shaved his head. These are expressions of grief, of great sorrow and anguish of soul. And I think our society hides from grief as though grief were a sign of weakness or even in the church of unbelief. And I don't know about you, I just hate this trend as of late to have celebrations of life rather than funerals. Not that a person's life isn't worthy of celebrating, that's what the reception's for. Have a funeral. But where's the place for grief, for public recognition of the fact that death is a wretched foe? That it's not part of the circle of life, that it's horribly unnatural, and that sadness and grief are an appropriate, necessary response to tragedy. Job's expression of, of grief here is forthright and it's dramatic and it says yet, and in all this Job did not sin. Grief is not sin. Sadness is not sin. To be in anguish of soul is not sin. Uh, nor is grief mutually exclusive with worship. You can worship in grief. We're told Job fell on the ground and worshipped in his grief. And we probably tend to envision worship as kind of, you know, bust out the tambourine and lyre. That's what worship is. And that is worship. Or perhaps we think of worship primarily as the victorious antiphonal hymns sung on the, the newly completed wall and in Nehemiah back and forth. Like, glorious. That is worship. But we forget that sometimes, and I think perhaps more frequently in Scripture, the posture of worship is laying down with your face on the ground, submitted wholly and humbly to this, the absolute sovereignty of God. E even in confusion, Job doesn't have a clue about what we know about this event. All he knows is all this bad stuff happened to, to me, and, that, and it doesn't... Why? And his first impulse 
is not to raise his fist in anger, but to fall to the earth and say, you're God and I'm not. So that's the first observation. Is he grieved? Second, uh, Job affirms God's sovereign right and his goodness. He affirms his sovereign rights and his goodness. Um, Notice it's interesting how Job assigns blame or credit, however you want to look at it, for these events that happened to him. I think I would be quick to say uh, the the Sibians and the the Chaldeans can't believe what they did to me. Or or he could easily lash out at God, a lightning storm, a, a great wind. These are, if you're in the insurance business, acts of God, right? He could lash out at God. Or could lay blame at Satan's feet. And in one sense, all of those blames have an aspect of truth to them. There's a technical accuracy there. However, Job's theology is more exalted. It's a theology that sees through these temporal events and circumstances and secondary and tertiary causes to the ultimate cause, to God. And he has a view of God's providence over all things that cuts through the, the confusion and the bitterness that is no doubt crouching at the door of his heart. Because that's exactly what will happen if we blame the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans and Satan, is we'll become bitter toward them. But a view of God's providence frees us from that bitterness, and it all comes back to God's sovereign rights, to give and to take. Job says he came into this world naked, a helpless baby needing support and sustenance that he could in no way obtain for himself, And it was the Lord who gave, and he gave, and he gave, and he gave. And now he accepts the fact that he will go down to the grave with nothing. Just as he came into the world, he'll go out. And it was not the Sabaeans, not Satan, but the Lord who took, and he took, and he took, and he took. He did it through Satan, through these these militaristic attacks, through weather, but it was ultimately God and it was his sovereign right to do it. Uh, Calvin says here that as soon as God allows us to enjoy some benefit for three days, we think that if he takes it away from us, he has done us a great wrong. The Jonah, pro, uh, the, the, the Jonah complex there. Oh, this vine is here. It's great. God took it away. Ah, I'm so mad at God for taking my vine. Uh, Calvin continues, we complain about him. What is this all about, we ask? It is about ingratitude. We think that if God has demonstrated his free goodness to us a single time, he is never to fail us no matter what we do. But that's, that's not how Job responds. He says, naked I came, naked I will depart. And that's not all Job says. Um, my landlord is kind to uh, keep my rent low, relatively low. Um, and if he was to call me one day and say, I'm going to raise the rent to the maximum possible amount that I can get for this property, I would be quick to affirm it's his house. He can do with it what he wants. That's his right. It's not unjust. I would probably be much slower to say, And blessed be his name. 
But that's exactly what Job does. Job's response is not a cold recognition of God's divine rights. Yeah, that's his right. It's not unjust. But he also adds in exaltation in a, that exudes honor and gratitude. He says, the Lord gave, the Lord has t- taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's the third observation. Is that Job blessed God. And this this is just great, I think, because what did Satan say? Stretch out your hand against him and he will curse you to hit to your face. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So we we endure many forms of suffering and sorrow in this world and really with the same um blindness to the intentions of God that Job has. We don't know what God's up to. We rarely know why we face the trials that we do. The Lord gives. The Lord takes. And how will we respond when he takes? In bitterness, in anger, or in worship, in our grief? God, in his absolute sovereignty, he he directs the flow of of history with purpose, and that includes the big things and the minute details of our lives. And again, no, no place is this seen more plainly than at the cross of Christ. Consider Acts 4, 27 and 28. The saints are gathered for prayer, and they pray, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God had a purpose in the cross. And he decided to do it. This reflects Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53.10 prophesying about Jesus. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. And, I, and in verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Then we read in Philippians 2, 8 through 11, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on, death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God the Father subjected the Son with the Son's complete agreement to the cross, to suffering, to great suffering, and the, the net result is the glory of God the Father. So we, we don't know the micro picture. We want the micro picture. We're not going to get it. Give up on that. We know the macro picture. And in that we can live, we can grieve, and we can worship. So I'll just conclude with from Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen.